Michelle from Spitboy, which right now an instructor teaches college English. Um, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you? Yeah, so I um, started playing in the punk rock bands in the 1980s when I was like 14 or 15, officially probably more like 15, but you know, we started thinking about being in a band when we were like 13. <laughs> we didn't know how to play our instruments yet. And um, that was in this really small town where I grew up. And the first band I was in was called Bitch Fight. And then we, we actually moved to the Bay Area and played shows here and played at Gilman Street and recorded a demo. And we have one song on a compilation, which I think is coming out as being re-released soon. Um, Can of Pork, I think is the compilation, if I'm getting it correct. And... Um, and then I went on to play guitar, which I'm horrible at, and come on the carnivores for a stint. And um, I'm kind of memorialized because I'm on the record, which, you know, is a whole other long story. And, um, and then, but I, you know, I'm really a drummer and um, I'm a self-trained drummer. <laughs> and um, that's my primary instrument. You know, I actually started on the flute in elementary school. But I really wanted to play, prefer to play drums because I'm better at drums. And um, I love Kamala Carnivores and Kamala Carnivores has this like really rad feminist angle. Like every, they have, it's like a lot of breakup songs and they're all written from a feminist angle. And they're like the best. Ivy is an amazing lyricist and a great songwriter. Um, but I really did at the time want to be in a, like a more political punk band because you know I, I was raised on more political punk and um, I saw that there was sort of a need like I wanted to be in a band that was like all women and that sang about like women's issues and politics and I just didn't really see that you know see that band I mean there were there were a lot of women in bands I mean there were women in bands singing about issues but in the Bay Area there were definitely no hardcore women bands and um the bands that, I'm not going to say there weren't bands, but the bands that got shows were, you know, who were all women were jangly, girl, pretty harmonies, oh, nice. music that I totally like. Um, but I wanted, I just felt like, okay, we need that. Where's that all woman hardcore band? Like just like raging, right? And I think I did have a false idea a little bit about, you know, I had sort of an immature idea that, that, um, I don't know, like that in order to be in punk, not in order to be, but like, I just kind of felt like, how do I put this? Like, I really like hardcore, right? And I wanted to be in a hardcore band, but I also think I was sort of like a little, like kind of brainwashed by like the whole hardcore thing and thinking that like, okay, women can, women can sound like that too. Brainwashed in the sense that like, I felt like maybe there was something wrong with the sonics of women in music. On the other hand, to say that women music should sound a certain way is a fairly essentialist idea also, right? Yeah. So um, yeah, I mean, you know, I was trying to grow into my ideas about, about music, but I, but I was genuinely a hardcore fan, not the kind of like beat you in the face kind of hardcore, <laughs> but we turned out to be spit boy hardcore. I think I went on, I, did, I weigh more than introduced myself. <laughs> Do you think having that idea though going into the punk scene kind of helped with the Spitboy sound, you know, kind of being a little naive in that sense to where you didn't see like, I mean, 
there's really not a lot of women in hardcore alone. There's a lot more now, but you know, at that time there really wasn't at all. And you said that, you know, looking at hardcore and, you know, seeing predominantly men, you kind of had this idea. It's like, well, we can sound like that too. Do you think that kind of helped inspire, you know, the sound that, you know, Spitboy had? Definitely. I mean, I think there, we were, we were working against this, Spitboy was working against this idea that, that men or people on the scene believed that only men played that music and we're like, uh, no, no, <laughs> totally not true. And we're gonna prove that wrong. Um, and you know, we were big fans of Fugazi, you know, that sound. And um, in addition, you know, Fugazi isn't a hardcore band, but we were, we, we liked that layered guitar, really like distorted layered guitar sound um, that was hard. And then we also were really inspired by fast, angry, hardcore. And, um, and, and then we also are, are women and we have women's sounding voices and we wanted to sing about women's issues. And we also liked collaborating. So because we grew up socialized as women and we, we um, were taught that women collaborate and um, you know, that, that you're more communal than, than the dudes, right? We um, collaborated as musicians and we all like, if you wrote a song, you sang on that song. Now we had a lead singer, right? Adrian was the singer of the band. But um, if Paula wrote a song, Paula sang with Adrian on that song. And if I wrote a song, I sang with Adrian and so on and so forth, right? And um, in doing so, the layered of women's voices and the different, the different kinds and you know, timbers of our different voices together that sounded womanly um, also created a new, I would say created a new kind of hardcore in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. Cause I mean, when you listen to Spitboy versus what was coming out at the time, you know, the nineties were such an iconic period for music in general, but more so for these female bands who were coming out of the scene, but Spitboy alone really defined, I would say women's hardcore in a sense, because it was so aggressive. Like you still had that like hardcore, like I want to punch you in the face, you know, like that energy, mm -hmm. but you remember that it's, it's women singing these songs you know, and there is that edge to it. And you know, that like, we're here doing this too. You know, it's not just men. <laughs> it's definitely like, I mean, we definitely wanted to have, like I said earlier, you know, we were working against that idea that men thought that only they could sound like that <laughs> and that they could only could be the ones to be in the pit and they could only be the ones on stage. And we were like, no. Um, and we really did, we have an in-your-face message and, you know, in-your-face music matches with that. I mean, I like clashing a, a lyric style with the music. So I think that's a really clever approach too, but we really wanted it to be like all out, you know, like tits out all the way. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> um, do you want to just talk about um, kind of the formation of Spitboy, how you all met each other and kind of got started? Yeah, so, well, first of all, I want to say that um, it's a little uncomfortable for me to like rep Spitboy, you know, because I was one of four, actually five members. So officially, um, we were a four member band, but there are five of us now who call ourselves Spit Women. And that's Dominique, 
Davison. She was our second base player. Paula, Paula. Um, oh my gosh. I'm not going to blank out on Paula's last name. Paula Hibbs Rhines or Paula <laughs> Rhines Hibbs because she has married name as well. And Karen Gembis and Adrian Drugas were all members of Spitboy. And Paula and Dominique replaced Paula. So, um, and then I wrote the book, The Spitboy Rule, which is about my experiences being in Spitboy, but it, I do tell Spitboy stories in it because, of course, why wouldn't I? Um, it's hugely informative period of my life. Um, so I do feel a little, I always feel a little uneasy repping the band, but I, I mean, you know, I think that I have most of my facts straight. <laughs> so, um, uh, we met in the early nineties. So I had just gotten out of, or, you know, Kamala Carnivores broke up and, um, I, think, I don't know, maybe it was like a, there was like a year or so, maybe a little less than, I don't even remember. Yeah, it was actually less than a year. I moped around trying to find people to be in a band with, and I do not want to play in a band with men. Like I just was like, I was not interested in that. And there were no dudes interested in the Bay Area really wanting it. Like, I'm going to find a girl to be in a band with. No guys were saying that then, by the way. <laughs> so if you wanted to be in a band and you were a woman, you probably better start your own band, right? So I would just go around and try to find people to play music and I would just try, try to find out who all the musicians were like which women were playing guitar in their in their room secretly I was like trying to find them all out and I heard Adrian's voice on a tape that my then boyfriend had and um, he was friends with Doug from um, Christ on Parade and um, Doug and Adrian were in a relationship at the time and Doug, you know, had like a little recording thing and he would like play guitar and sing and Adrian would sing and stuff and her voice was so cool. And it actually didn't sound anything like what we know as Spitboy Adrian, right? <laughs> but um, I was like, she's gotta be the singer. I told Neil, invite them over. I'll make dinner, invite them over. So I can like, I seriously think I made dinner so I can like, you know, ask Adrian if she wants to be in a band with me. <laughs> and um. I don't know if I met, I met Paula right around the same time and she was just learning how to play bass. And um, we were like, we don't care. You don't have to play perfect. It's a punk band, right? And then Paula knew Karen um, from like, oh gosh, Blacklist Distro. We used to all kind of volunteer and Karen was more involved in Blacklist. And so was, um, was um, Paula. And she knew that Karen had learned how to play guitar. And actually Karen took guitar lessons when she was younger. And then she lived with like, the um the j church guys and um and they like were teaching her more i think or something or she was just they all had guitars around so they were all playing so we um we all met each other we all decided like i don't know how it was like old school telephone literally on the telephone like calling karen on the phone hey karen we're gonna start a band you want to come over <laughs> so she lived in the city um and we live all lived in the east bay and we borrowed someone's practice space and had a drum set in it. And it was like reeked of like cigarettes and beer. And we never drank while we practiced or anything like that. But you know, a lot of the punk bands did that, you know, kind of like the dude sort of way. We're very serious about our, our musician, you know, about our practice, practicing. So we all were very serious. Okay, we're gonna get together. We have this space. And um, the first night we got together, I had written a skeleton like guitar part and lyrics for the song. Seriously, I had written all the lyrics and a skeleton version of the song guitar because I, you know, sort of play guitar and showed that to Karen and we just started playing and we played it over and over again. And Adrian sang and messed around with different vocal parts. 
And um, by the end of the night, you know, a couple hours in, we had a song. We were like, it, it wasn't even a question of like, are we a band? It was like, okay, when are we going to practice next? <laughs> and so that was, you know, that was in early 19, that was in 1990 at some point. And um, within a few months, we played our, played our first show. And it was kind of a spectacle. Like I remember it was in, a, it was in the warehouse that my then boyfriend, who was the bass player later of Paxton Quigley, I don't even think he played bass at that point. Um, he like learned how to play bass and quickly got himself into a band. <laughs> and um, a bunch of people, like some of the guys from Neurosis and Econochrist were there and 23 more minutes and like other bands were all just like hanging out. And I remember we played first and um, I write about this in the book a little bit that it just felt like they were all like, all right, what's this, what's this gonna, what's this gonna sound like? And, um, you know, they're kind of like nodding in their heads. No one ever was like, that was amazing. Was like, that was just kind of like, okay, all right. <laughs> and then, you know, we got asked to play Gilman and stuff like that after that. So that was kind of like our approval. Um, we didn't really need their approval, obviously, but it just, it, we definitely, I personally noticed that when the guys would watch each other play, they no, oh, that was so rad, blah, blah, blah. They didn't, they didn't do that to us. I think that happens to a lot of women in the scene that like, I mean, it's, it is much more accepted, you know, being a female in the music industry and, you know, punk and stuff. But I think a lot of women have had to go through that trial period where it's like you're proving yourself to see if you can last or you know even hold your own in it like the, you're you're okay i guess for a girl yeah. like yeah. band exactly <laughs> well you know it's funny when you say that now that okay now that the the discography the spitboy discography is going to come out this year there are all these guys when the when the when the word came out who posted and like said oh spitboy was so bad i saw them all this time and they taught me this and blah 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 I was like, where were you? How come you didn't <laughs> fucking say this in the 90s? Like that that could have like really been helpful. It was really interesting that that there all these people that we knew back then are like singing our praises now. And, oh, the musicianship and all this stuff. I'm like, you guys weren't saying this then. I mean, maybe, I mean, I'm not gonna say they, they some of them weren't thinking, some of the people weren't thinking that, but it just really, I mean, I, I could go on and on about it. And maybe, you know, a lot of this is just kind of like gut stuff. So maybe I should just shut up, but I'm yeah, not going to be <laughs> like, I don't know. I think of like, you know, I've heard from friends who like are in bands and stuff and we have, you know, mutual friends who are in a band who are on a label and, you know, one of their label mates who are all men, you know, when they got signed, they kind mm -hmm. of threw a fit and they're like, why are they, you know, getting signed like they shouldn't be on this label like they're not that great blah blah and then they ended up outselling them with their next album and finally they're like you're all right I guess like <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah so it's it's totally a thing I mean you know and it really is I mean is it that I guess that like it's it's just that women in in music um, for some men, it really feels threatening. So threatening that that when faced with with having to make an opinion about that band, all of a sudden they don't know what they like and what they don't like. Like they cannot. Like it's so clouded by the feeling of a threat um, that they all of a sudden have no musical judgment. It's it's bizarre. It really is, and it's. I think there are a lot of men that harbor that like internalized misogyny and 
you know, when they feel threatened in that sense, then it starts to come out a little bit. And yeah, I actually do want to talk. I have your book right here. Actually, I read it. It's great. <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> but that's one of the things that you talk about in here, too, is that, you know, you had to face so much during these shows and, you know, these men who didn't really take kindly to Spitboy at first. I, I can't remember what show it was, but you mentioned there was a show where a guy said, you know, player, open your legs. You know, like, that's so wild to hear, you know, as women who are doing something you're passionate about and trying mm -hmm. to bring this new style to the scene, you know, you've been involved in it forever. And there's still men who are trying to put you down and try and say, no, you can't do this. You're yeah, that that was, you know, that was not an isolated incident. I mean, people may not have said spread your legs or play, but we got a lot of take off your shirt or shut up and play. Shut up and play was a really common one. You know, that didn't happen in the Bay Area as it really hardly ever because you know, people were too politically correct. Um, if they were thinking that they didn't say it. Um, but outside of the Bay Area, we got a lot of a lot of comments like that. And the spread your legs or play one was particularly um, egregious and hurtful. I mean, like so humiliating. I mean, he meant to humiliate us and it was humiliating. I mean, like I say in that story, you know, we, the show was stopped. I mean, this guy was always making trouble at these house parties. And um, what I don't write about in the book that in that much detail is the um, Jesse, the guy whose house it was, like thanked us afterwards and he was like no one ever stands up to them you're the only one who ever they always make trouble at every show and you're the only band who ever said anything to him and ever stood up to him and he's been making trouble forever um so that you know it made us feel like we you know we trusted our guts and we did the right thing um in saying something, I mean, maybe I didn't mean to throw my drumsticks or whatever, or try to like beat him up, beat up some guy who was like on America's Most Wanted apparently, but, <laughs> but um, that we spoke out, you know, and we had actually stopped playing before that because, you know, he, they were like kind of being violent in the pit and stuff, but you know, it, that kind of, to be faced with that public, that kind of public humiliation it's really hard. Um, it's not like you don't get on stage the next night because we believe in what we're doing and, and we, the four of us, insulate each other. But, um, you know, by the end of the, that evening, everyone in the band was crying. We were all crying. And, um, you know, we didn't recover, you know, until, you know, our like <laughs> feeling until like the next day, definitely. Um, yeah, so those, those were some really, those were difficult situations to face, but it's a lot easier to do that when you're in a band and you have your 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 hermanas, your sisters there with you. Um, and then, um, you know, other people in bands like the Paxo Quigley guys, they were really supportive um, as well. But, you know, it really just goes to show that the point that we were making early about how much of a threat women in music are to some people. And, you know, to be fair, you know, some people want to go to a punk show or a house party to get drunk and, and have a good time. And they don't want to lecture. They don't want a feminist studies lecture. You got to get that. But, you know, um, guess what? This is punk and it's political sometimes. And you might get a lecture and you might get, you know, um, a feminist. It might happen to be a feminist studies lecture. And if you don't like it, guess what? You can go outside and drink your beer out there. Yeah, 
Absolutely. I think, I mean, that brings up a good point too. And you talk about it in your book that, you know, you hated sexism, but you didn't hate men. And I think when people hear the word feminism, that's what they automatically think mm -hmm. of is that you just hate all men. Mm -hmm. Really, it's, yeah. you hate the issues that are being presented to us by men, you know, as, as women experiencing these inequalities because of who we are. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're trying to raise awareness about. You know, we're trying to lift ourselves and each other up, not bring them down. Exactly. Yeah. Feminism, you know, still is kind of, a, to say you're a feminist, raises some people's eyebrows still, which is so bizarre. Um, it's, you know, it, it can't, it, some people treat it like a dirty word. Um, but I mean, you know, what can you do? We are trying to raise up and we're just going to keep, you know, even, even now spit boy is still trying to raise awareness. And that's what the whole thing about putting our record, you know, releasing the discography, this isn't about glory. We're not getting back together. We're not reforming. We're not reuniting. Um, we're not going to sell tickets and post pictures of ourselves playing on Instagram or any of that, any of that we're, we're doing this because we want to preserve the legacy of our music. And, and it's an opportunity to raise money for a women's, a women's cause for the women's national law center. And, um, and, you know, for us, a group of women in our fifties, and we may not be able to be in Spitboy anymore, but we, um, we can still be feminist with a capital F. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I think, I mean, you talk about it a lot in here, and I think the Spitboy role itself is kind of a coming of age story, you know, within the band and within yourself. Um, and one of the things that is talked about throughout the book is the, um, the riot girl movement, but I, I want to bring up kind of a bigger point with that because I think a lot of women in the nineties had this generalization that if you were in a female band, that you were part of the riot girl movement. And that wasn't the case for everyone. And you talk a little bit about how adamant you were that, we were talking about the same stuff, you know, Spitboy was talking about all these same issues, but you were not a part of this movement. And I think right. people really felt that same way. You know, you look at like L7, I mean, all these other bands who were coming mm -hmm. out who were automatically categorized as Riot Girl when they were not at all. Yeah, I hadn't intended to, to write as much about that. I mean, I had, I, when I started writing the book, I had written the the not a riot girl band story. Um, but it became more clear to me as I was writing the book, how important it was to, to write it and get it published partially for the, for, for this very point um, that to, to kind of demonstrate that in the nineties, if you were in a woman, if you were a band and you were a woman, didn't mean you were a riot girl, even though that was the assumption. And it still is the assumption. I mean, a lot of people who weren't riot girls are called riot girls now who are just musicians. <laughs> and I kept seeing that and it was just driving me crazy. Yeah, it just kept driving it was like the same thing that happened to us in the 90s was happening all over again. So I just kind of felt like I really need to set the record straight here. So the original title of that story was the Riot Girl controversy, but I changed it to not a Riot Girl band to make it more in your face. 
so that people would ask me about it, even though I'm sick of talking, you know, I get kind of get sick of talking about Riot Girl because I don't want to say bad things about them because I, like you said, I believe in so many of the things that, that they believe in, but, but um, I titled it that because I wanted to continue to continue that discussion or for people to continue having that discussion or realization that not all bands of women in the nineties were Riot Girls, that that, that was, um, that that was a movement that not everyone identified with. And I particularly um, identified with it less and less after I was accused of culture, after Spitboy was accused of cultural appropriation for the title of our seven is Mi Cuerpo Es Mio, which is a title that I came up with just for the sole purpose of the fact that I wanted something on record with having to do with Spitboy that acknowledged my ethnicity. Um, and you know, the woman who wrote that, who, who accused us of cultural appropriation, it's actually someone who lived in the Bay Area and she'd seen me around and still somehow didn't realize that I was Mexican, <laughs> that I was a Chicana. It was so bizarre, like it completely invisibilized me and my identity. Um, and, and I, and, you know, I, I can't really totally blame that on Bright Girl. You know, we, in the nineties, people were all trying to be all colorblind, like, oh, I don't see race. It was kind of like the way people tried not to be, be racist back then. It was common, but um, to actively accuse us of cultural appropriation was like a whole nother level. Yeah. I, reading that part, I couldn't help but laugh in a, are you kidding kind of way, because I mean, it clearly wasn't cultural appropriation. I mean, you're Mexican, you know, this is your song, your story, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And just, it shows just how colorblind people are in the scene, you know, and just, we want to have diversity, but at the same time, we're not going to see you, you know, we're not going to see your identity. Everyone's just kind of like here. And back then people really didn't want diversity. That wasn't even something that people really, I mean, in the punk scene, it was kind of like, I mean, people were using that, the term multicultural, but that was more in like educational settings. It really hadn't made its way to punk actually. Um, people weren't really even using the word diversity at all. It's more like multicultural and that, that idea hadn't made its way to punk. And so in, in the Bay Area, I'll speak for the Bay Area punk scene. In the Bay Area punk scene, like your identity, you better just keep your identity punk or you weren't punk enough. If you wanted to be something else, you weren't gonna, you were gonna lose punk points. And, um, and that really was part and parcel of the, like the colorblind thing. And, you know, punk is funny. You know, I, I'm, you know, still consider myself a punk, but punk and its rules, I mean, <laughs> it's dumb rules sometimes. It's so, it's so ironic yeah. and, and hypocritical um, that it has these, you know, its own kind of like rules within punk, its own like social codes. And, um, and it's so anti-authority at the same time. It's, it's hilarious. Um, but, you know, you know, it's also, you know, like, like you said earlier, the book is partially about like coming of age. And one of the things that to understand about punk is that punk is a young people subculture and young people are are coming into their ideas. Young people are learning things. And so I can criticize that, but we were also really young and we were learning and we were coming into our own identities. 
um, and not just identity, but identities, you know, many people's queer identities, many people's ethnic identities and, you know, different abilities. And, um, and so, you know, that time of change and rapid change and flux um, in young people um, looks stupid and immature sometimes, but it's a necessary part of, of being and making those mistakes. And um, so like, you know, it's easy to criticize punk, but a lot of the times when you're criticizing punk, you're just criticizing young people. And I never want to be one of those old, old ladies who's all like, oh, kids these days, I don't know anything. It's like, you know what? Um, we're going to learn stuff. We're all going to learn some stuff together. <laughs> yeah, I mean, reading that part in the book, it sounded kind of like this pivotal moment for you as a person and a punk, you know, because this, the book starts off with you trying to get out of your hometown because there wasn't any representation for you as a Mexican American, mm -hmm. but now you're being accused of cultural appropriation. <laughs> and it kind of like reading it, it sounded like you kind of took a step back where like, here I am leaving my hometown because I want more, you know, representation of myself. Mm -hmm. But now is it too much? Like, I don't, you know, like it was kind of, where do I stand now? Because now someone's not seeing me for that. Right. Yeah. Like I was too visible in Tuolumne in this weird way. <laughs> and then I became invisible here. Um, yeah, there really is, you know, I did, I, did, I did feel that very, very, very acutely and I participated in it. You know, I participated in it by, um, you know, at times by adhering to the punk uniform. Like I, I always have this thing where I've forever, I cut my hair and then I grow it long and I cut my hair and I grow it long. And when I grew it long, I really liked it a lot. But, you know, a lot of times, but I would often feel insecure, like, or people would say like, oh, you're not very punk, your hair is long. It's just dumb stuff. And you're just like, um, oh. A, that's dumb, but you know, when you're young, it makes you feel like it makes you question, um, question yourself. Um, and you know, I, I should have made the connection, you know, the body is mine connection. Like, Hey, this is my body this is my hair. This is my, I should, I should be able to, why are you policing how I want to wear my hair or how I want to dress or whatever. Why are you, why are you punker policing me? Um, but you know, it's hard to make that, those kinds of connections kind of like um, articulately when you feel um, insecure. And, you know, I, I, you know, was bullied when I grew up and, you know, you, um, and it was standoffish because of that. And I, I was never really, a, I've never been a people pleaser, but you know, you, I came to the Bay Area and left Wallamy largely and was in bands because I wanted to find acceptance, you know, and I thought I could find acceptance in the scene. And then when, when at, in those times when I didn't, um, I think I didn't always stand up for myself enough. But that's hard too. I mean, looking at how old you all were at that time, like that's hard when you're trying to discover yourself and you're having these outside influences kind of push you down too, saying, you know, don't really belong in, in this. Right. Well, young people are very self-righteous about their beliefs and there's a part of that that's important, right? Because you, you have to be self-righteous about your beliefs in order for them to take hold. Um, <laughs> so that's an important part of the process too, but sometimes that self-righteousness causes us to be assholes to other people. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I think everyone goes through that phase. <laughs> totally. It's, it's a part of the process, though. You just learn and grow up. Yeah. Do you want to talk about um, just the re-release of the discography, like kind of how that got started and how you started talking about that? Sure. So, um, you know, I think it had always sort of been in the back of my mind since I have kind of become the default, like, um, archivist of the band, you know, because I started having to collect photographs and stuff for the book and, you know, and journal entry, my own journal entries and flyers so I could kind of piece together and get the facts as straight as I could. Um, but I really never really thought that anyone would would ever re-release the Spitboy stuff. But I have all the reels because at one point Adrian moved to Australia and before she left, she she had the reels and she brought them all to me and was like, you need to keep these because we can't, of course, we have to save them. Like, of course, and I own a house, so I have a garage. So I put them on a high shelf, you know, to keep them away from any, you know, water that might, you know, whatever, you know, garages, sometimes they flood and stuff. So um, every once in a while, I would look at them and be like, dang, you know, I just wish we can like, just put all the Spitboy music in like one place. And then um, Jeremy Amp from song, created songpreserve.com and he was able to digitize, help, I helped me um, get some of the song, get some of the music digitized. Um, so like there are songs that you can, you can listen to Spitboys, about 20 of Spitboys songs are on Song Preserve and you can, you can listen to them through Spotify or whatever, Song Preserve, Song Preserve hosts them, but you know, they can, you can listen to them on Spotify or Amazon or Apple Music or whatever. And um, that was a really, really like kind of like a first step. And um, that was, the first step in me having to email everyone in the band and say, look, this is not as I can make decisions about my book and what I say about the book, but I can't make decisions about what we're going to do with Spitboy's music. I've been offered this. Do you want to do it? So at that point we had, this is about three or so years ago, we had like a group email. And, and then after that, occasionally, since the book came out, people ask, oh, can I, can we use this one song for this thing and turn it around? Um, Story of East Bay Punk came out. So we got, we, we got asked by, um, the Green Day Green Days people to use a song on that compilation, and a couple of us were in the movie, and so we have been making band decisions again for the last few years. And then um, Don Giovanni Joe Steingart from Don Giovanni um, emailed me about two years ago and asked if we would want to do a discography, and I was like, Hell yeah! I've been wanting to do that forever because there were there are actually five songs that you can't get on the internet anywhere or on um, maybe on YouTube, maybe um, a couple of them, but not all of them. So we have like 25, I think it's 25 total songs. And um, so it was May, two years ago in May that he emailed me and we really kind of started. And then I think we got stalled at one point. I don't remember why, but Spitboy also does everything by consensus and we always have we make our decisions by consensus and that takes a little longer right to build consensus you have to really listen and communicate and so um and we have one member who's in new zealand we have one member who's in the midwest kansas so we're working on different time zones three of us are here in in california and um so we had to make decisions about everything, song order. We had to write down all the lyrics and make sure they were correct. We had to decide on who's gonna do the artwork and the cover and everything by consensus. And it really, it took two, it took about two years to, to complete the whole process or less, about a year and a half. And um, 
and we we had one okay one of this is a good story one of the seven inches it, i don't remember which one it was either mi cuerpos meal or rasan i don't remember which one of the seven inches um the real oh no maybe it wasn't seven inch it was like some just some, a few random songs the real could not be played so i have the reels but one of the reels could not be played and it had to be baked so there actually is a process where you bake it in this like oven it's like a it's like a a dehydrator, dehydrator oven on really low for like the whole day. And the engineer, you know, you pay someone who's gonna remix or master, remix the songs, you pay them. They, so I had Bart in, in Oakland in a, a recording student in Oakland, he baked it and we just didn't know if it was gonna work, but it did work. And then he um, remixed the songs for us. And uh, of course we had to listen to all those and give feedback and then you go in for a second mix and all that but so some of the some of the songs like we had to like go through a really complicated process to get um digital copies of them because they weren't out there um we were able to digitize a few other things kind of like in a in a more modern way but this was like really old school baking the baking the reels so um yeah so then we you know we spent we because we're not um gonna tour on the record or anything like that um we needed some people with names to help us with the liner notes. So um, we happen to um, be lucky enough to be friends. You know, we've been friends with Billy Joe for many years, all these years. We all grew up together in the Bay Area punk scene. And um, I'm really actually really good friends with his sister. Um, and uh, she's also a writer. So we talk writing a lot. And so, you know, I was like, hey, do you think you'd be able to help us out here? And so we worked it out and his his liner notes were so great and, you know the, the writing was like so vivid and like energetic and um Karen Gembis the guitar player Sipoy asked Vicky if she would um, write some liner notes for us also and hers are really great offered a whole nother perspective really kind of fleshed out the women's issues and the timeliness of the record um and so yeah so it's coming out June 25th double LP the first issue is going to be on red really beautiful red marbled vinyl all proceeds, um, all it has 25 songs, a um, jacket, gatefold jacket with a booklet. I think it's like a four or six page booklet inside, a bunch of photographs. Um, Martin Crudo, um, Martin Sorondegi from Los Crudos did the artwork. And, um, and um, yeah, all the proceeds, including Don Giovanni's proceeds um, for the record will go to the Women's National Law Center um, because we really wanted, and we have actually been raising money for the, the Women's National Law Center through um, streaming and downloads of our songs on Song Preserve. So that was something that we had been doing already and we decided to, to keep, um, keep the same cause or to benefit the same cause just so we could kind of make a, a bigger dent. Um, and you know, the Women's National Law Center does a lot of really important work. They, they've done some Me Too related work. They, um, they provide legal representation and funding for for um, women in the workplace or workplace harassment um, and lots of other really, really important work um, that supports women in the United States. Awesome, that's really exciting. Yeah. <laughs> what does, I mean, what does it mean for you all now, you know, to have it released after so many years and have people still be super excited about it? It's pretty weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of, I mean, I, I, 
I'm not even being facetious. It's, it still trips me out that, um, you know, people are, I mean, first of all, everyone in the band, no one in the band could believe that Rolling Stone picked up the story. I mean, they picked it up because Billy Joe wrote the liner notes, right? And that's why we asked them to do it because we're not going to tour. We need people to, you know, to spread the, help us spread the word about this record, right? Um, so, but we, we all, we actually had like a really good laugh on our, on our um, Facebook chat um, that we got in Rolling Stone and we didn't even have to take off our clothes to be on the cover. <laughs> um, thanks, Billy Joe. Um, so um, it, that was really, really crazy for all of us. But, you know, I think even more, more like heartwarming and more akin to the kind of thing that Spitboy really cares about, people have been posting about it on their social media and telling stories about times they saw Spitboy. I saw Spitboy in this place and this happened. Uh, this, I had some, one of our tour, um, our tour manager in, in um, Japan emailed me and quoted a line from the song Sexism Impressed. Um, and and he, he was like, I had never really understood sexism. And then I, I saw Spitboy, he came to the Bay Area and he saw Spitboy play at Gilman and he saw he had the lyric sheet and he read those lyrics and he's like, it just clicked. Like I, I understood my, what it, how it worked and my, my role in it, my, my complacency. Um, and he was like texting me this recently. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like that's the kind of thing that I love. I love hearing. In fact, I kind of, you know, in some ways, like I think that if I really had it my way, if, if, if society wasn't like so capitalist and we weren't trying to like sell records and like trying to, you know, trying to raise money for a cause that should have money, um, I would just have fans write the liner notes. That'd be really cool. Yeah. Like, <laughs> how, how did Spitboy affect me or, you know, something. The stories are fun, you know, because like, I don't remember every single show. So you also kind of like your memory gets jogged about shows you don't really remember that much from. Yeah. That's really exciting. And especially too, like the subject matter of Spitboy's songs are still relevant today. I mean, we're still fighting the same stuff. And that's basically what Vicky says in her, her liner notes um, that unfortunately the songs are still relevant. Um, and then also like, you know, it was also said, it's also been said that like, we were saying these things that, and you know, using language that, that is now kind of commonplace in our culture and that young people use. And we were singing about those issues back then. And, and um, you know, we were definitely kind of forward thinking in that sense, I guess. I mean, you know, we were also just, well read and we you know we spoke about issues that affected our lives we we're speaking from lived experience and then our lived experience caused us to go and read books like mismeasure of woman or like ultimate violations which the song is named after and um or oh my gosh that big old susan flutie book backlash which i still have <laughs> i use it as a computer stand it's so big <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> put my laptop on it on my desk downstairs. <laughs> um, so I don't know if I answered your question. Hopefully I did. Just, yeah, just talking on like the subject matter that like it is frustrating that we're still having to fight these same issues and that we're still having these conversations on how we can, you know, lift each other up and just combat like the sexism and misogyny that we're still seeing, you know, like 30 years later. <laughs> we are still seeing it. You know, we live in a, we live in a system or a society that is still patriarchal. We've still not had a woman president. <laughs> I mean, that I just, you know, I just can't, we're America. We've not had a woman president. Like that is, I, I, I still can't believe that. Um, but yeah, we're still, we're, we still need to be talking about these issues. So um, for that reason as well, I'm glad that the record is coming out. Am I glad that we're still having these issues? Absolutely not. Have we made some progress? We have, we have made some progress, but not enough, you know, not enough for those who are, are living the folly of, of humanity every single day. Um, it's not enough. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we need to continue to have these conversations. You know, you can't talk about it enough. You have to continue to let people know and just spread that awareness because I mean, there's still so many people that have that internalized misogyny. Yeah. Just don't want to hear it. They don't. And, you know, it also takes all kinds of art forms to, to, I mean, there are other kinds of art forms that are participating in the same kind of discussions, whether it's, you know, visual art or poetry. Um, and so, you know, it's important to understand that one Spitboy's message might not connect with someone, um, but maybe a visual representation of the same message might connect with that person. And so all those art forms are really, really, really important. Um, and, you know, Spitboy is no more less important in terms of the way it delivers its message. You know, our, our messages happen to be delivered, you know, through music, punk, subculture for young people, because um, that's who we were at the time. Um, but we drew from other art and other sources and schol also scholarly works um, to make to make our, our music and to, to write the songs that we wrote. So we, we were influenced not only by our own, you know, lived experiences, but we were also influenced by the, the, the other art or scholarly works that we, that helped inform us or helped us understand our own situations or conditions so that we could help other people or other women in the scene understand it. Cause you know, punk is just a microcosm for everything else. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, you talk about that too in your book, um, drawing inspiration for like your album covers. And, you know, I think the first mention of it is um, the graffiti, where the mm -hmm. photo of the graffiti that you had talked about using for your album cover, but it didn't, it didn't represent the four of you as, you know, women, because it was mm -hmm. talking on, you know, white people, but mm -hmm. you're not white, you know, not all of you were. Right, and that was a tense moment, you know, because I had to not be colorblind and I had to ask the other people in the band to not be colorblind to see that a record cover that said kill white bitch was, was didn't represent me. Um, and then also, you know, it, you know, at the time, Paula was a lot, she was the one who was a lot more savvy about issues of identity and ethnicity um 
that just is something that was more natural to her. And she was the one who was able to articulate that, yeah, maybe we also just don't want to, we're not trying to indict uh, someone, the person who wrote that, who was probably a black man, it becomes a race issue then too, right? And um, our intention wasn't to point out the racism, our intention was to point out the, the sexism, but it, the, the conversation or the, the whole message would have become very convoluted too. Um, so in the end, we, we chose not to, to use it. But the, the cool thing is, it's not, not that we chose to use it. The cool, the, really the cool thing is, is that we had like a robust discussion, you know, and we like listened to each other and we like learned some stuff from each other, right? And we were forced to kind of like, to, to figure out our stance on these issues. Um, and to think to think more about them. And that was one of the things, that was one of the main things that I loved Spipoli for so much. Um, even though there were times that were, you know, that were difficult in terms of the class stuff, the class differences in the band, um, we helped each other learn about ourselves and the world um, in, in just like major ways and really, really fast because we were just together so much and creating together so much and so quickly. Yeah, and I mean, that's prevalent. You guys really did go through a lot together and helped each other grow and you know learn and speak on issues and mm -hmm. have these lifelong experiences that you all have with you, you know. yeah <laughs> yeah we still you know it's funny we when we we met on zoom early in the pandemic um and it was so, it was all five of us, you know, now we don't consider, we don't consider like, oh, Spitboy with Paula, the version of Dominique. It's like all five of us are Spitboy. And um, it was so cool to be in the same Zoom room with them. I mean, totally bizarre, but um, to see their faces again and like to interact and to see the ways in which we've stayed the same and the ways in which we've changed and how we all look and um, just to have all five of us interacting together. Um, it was, it, it was really sweet. Um, it really, I definitely, it definitely brought a tear to my eye. <laughs> Even thinking about it. What do you hope people kind of gain from not just the re-release, but just kind of like the Spitboy legacy? Like, what do you hope people take away from it? Oh, that's a big question. Um, well, I have to say, you know, Don Giovanni's um, marketing guy called us progenitors. And I, I, I really like, I have to say, even though it's kind of like full of me to say this, I like being called a, a feminist, hardcore feminist punk progenitor, you know. Um, but you know, in terms of our legacy, for me, the, the, some of the most important things are that we were a group of women who wrote about issues that we face in our lives every day and that we didn't need some Columbus to come and discover us. We didn't need some major record label to tell us or give us permission to do it. We did it and we toured and we were nice to people and um, that matters. And people, um, we toured a lot and we were nice to people. Those two things together, I think are, 
largely and the music, but I think those two things together are largely responsible for the reaction that people are having to this record coming out. Um, yes, it's the music. Yes, it's the lyrics. Yes, okay, we're progenitors. You can call us that. I love it. But, you know, we toured a lot. We went a lot of places. We toured overseas, we went to Japan, Real Australia, Europe but we were also nice to people and um, present. You know, we didn't like drink and do these raging like rock star stuff. We were present and we, we, we loved all the places we went and just curious and, um, and we wanted to spread a message and we still want to do that, you know? And I, I think another thing that's important in terms of our legacy is that we were not a riot girl band. We did all of these things without, um, without the, uh, the uplift or the mantle of a riot girl, the riot girl label, which we, you know, rejected um, um, publicly. Um, but I also don't want to like be you know, super adversarial with Riot Girl. either. I want that to be said because um, everything they stood for, just about everything they stood for, the same things that we stood for. We, we didn't want to be called girls. Um, and we didn't really feel comfortable with the, the boys to the back um, stance or rule. Um, though I think it's brilliant. <laughs> I think it's totally brilliant. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways. But um, it didn't. It didn't feel right. Um, I don't know that I would ever feel right doing that. You know, I mean, as a person of color, you know, it, it because there are marginalized boys and boys, or in a, in any audience, um, that just wouldn't feel right to me, probably. But um, yeah, I mean, I think those things are what I want our legacy to be. You know, that we that we went a lot of places met a lot of really great people and we were nice and friendly and present and we had a message and um, we wanted other women to to know that that um, I know not that they weren't alone but we wanted other women to engage in the ideas that we were engaging in and to to kind of help or assist, like, cause we kind of felt like we were learning more about our condition and our experiences. And if we wrote songs about them, that would inspire others to, to learn more, maybe push for more, expect more. Yeah, so also, I mean, we also wanted to be, I mean, I don't, I don't wouldn't say we wanted to be role models of women in punk, but um, we wanted to be women in punk cause women are in punk, yo. <laughs> yes absolutely i mean it, it is really empowering though seeing you know women in punk and just having that strong sense of presence on stage yeah and we always felt the same way when we saw women in music too so awesome all right uh, Kenan, did you have anything you wanted to ask um yeah um so dealing with like the sexism and like having to prove yourself at shows constantly mm -hmm. what like what was it that just kept you going and not being like okay I'm like done like was it the fact that you had like a message to tell everybody or like you had this passion 
Oh, we loved playing music with each other, you know, and we, we had a lot to say. And, um, you know, when you, ha- when you have a lot of ideas, you have a lot to say. And, you know, we were, we were musicians. We considered ourselves musicians. You know, when you're a musician and that's your art form, you don't just stop because you have critics. I mean, you're always going to have critics, you know, and I, I grew up totally bullied and a total reject <laughs> in so many ways. And, you know, so I, ha- I personally have a really thick skin. Mm-hmm. Always have, always will. So, you know, that's how I kept going. I was like, you know, this is, you know, this is, not as bad as being one of the few Mexicans in town and having people in high school throw cartons of milk at your head. Um, This definitely beats that. And, you know, we had a platform, you know, so when you're in a band and people are willing to um, book you and people are getting excited about your band, like um, that, that keeps you going because you know that even though that you have those naysayers out there and you have critics or you have assholes in the audience, people showed up to see us play. And that, that always fuels you, you know, people, I mean, a lot of rock stars are like, oh, it's the fans, but you know, in a lot of ways it really is. And for us, we didn't really see them as fans. We just saw them as people who wanted to come and see us play. And, and um, you know, punk shows are really intimate. So you could really get to know people. You get to know people in the town that you stay in, the people who host you, people who hang out with the shows afterwards, people who send you letters and photographs later, or people who interview you. Um, you know, in the van or outside the van or outside the club or whatever over French fries. Um, And, you know, it's it's, punk is really intimate. And um, that intimacy makes you feel um, can really, especially when you're a band, because people adore people in bands, everyone loves rock stars. Um, That that definitely keeps you going for sure. Touring is hard. That's touring is hard. I will say that. But, um, but, um, you know, the people and relationships, you know, everything in life is about relationships and um, punk bands are a way to be in community. Love that. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know if you wanted to plug like your social media or where people can find you or any of that. Yeah, I'm at um, Chicana Brava on Twitter. Chicana with an X and um, Chicana period brava at instagram and also i just created um a spitboy instagram and it's called spitboy underscore body of work um and i'm posting like photographs and lyrics and stuff um spitboy spitboy ephemera um just kind of like for as a way to kind of get generate excitement and as a lead up to to the record coming out because I am really genuinely genuinely excited to have all of our songs all 25 songs and all the spit women all five of us spit women on one record like that feels really 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 right that's really exciting and we're both super excited to see (laughs) (laughs) very very excited yeah it's it's huge and I have the test pressing and it starts off with our very first song ever, seriously. And it's it's really the perfect way to start. Dun, 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 dun. It really, it's it's rocking, yeah. Did it, did it bring you back a little bit hearing it now? Like Totally, and I like played it really loud. And my family was like, oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's start. <laughs> yeah. 
my in-laws are from Mexico and I'm like, hey, I'm just, I got the, the test pressing for the record. You want to hear at least the first song? My husband's like, because, <laughs> you know, I want to hear it loud. You can't listen to Spit Boy quiet and you can't sit down and listen to Spit Boy either. That's kind of weird. So I stand there. <laughs> You're just standing there next to it. Is this mm -hmm. bobbing my head? <laughs> I love that. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Um, You're welcome. <laughs> thank you so much. You're welcome. <laughs>